Welcome to Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. Hello, everyone. I'm David Lash from the Bayer Communication Team. I'm very excited to host uh, this special edition of the Bayer podcast, Headlines of the Future. Um, we want to talk about COP27, the UN Climate Conference that uh, took place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt just a few days ago. And we want to do this with two very special guests who join me here today. A very warm welcome to Earthwind Cousin and Matthias Berninger. Hi, David. Great to be with you. Hi, David, and thanks for being with us in Sharm el-Sheikh. <laughs> That's true. It was great. Um, as many of you know, of course, uh, Earthrin um, served as U.S. Ambassador for Food and Agriculture. She was the Executive Director of the United Nations World Food Program. She's the founder and CEO of Food Systems for the Future, a distinguished fellow with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And since 2019, she is a member of the Bayer Supervisory Board, where she is heading the ESG Committee. Uh, Matthias joined Bayer in 2019. He is serving as the Global Head of Public Affairs, Science, Sustainability, and SHE, which stands for Safety, Health, and Environment at Bayer. So we all had the opportunity to be at COP27 in Egypt uh, a few days ago. While it was my first time there, you both have a lot of experience uh, with this event in particular, but uh, in general with the discussions and negotiations around climate change. So with that in mind, Earthrin, um, when you look back, what is your main takeaway from this COP27? What was maybe special and different compared to previous years? Well, I think the most glaring difference was the fact that agriculture uh, and food security were even on the agenda of the COP. Matthias will recall that when we traveled to Glasgow for COP26, our, my main reason for participating in that COP was to raise the issue of the necessity for including agriculture and food security and food systems onto the agenda of the COP in hopes of getting it into the declaration itself at COP26. Uh, while we received a lot of attention at COP26 after, and I think Matthias would correct me if I'm wrong, a 5,000-word declaration where neither food security nor agriculture was mentioned even once. So going into this COP, we were, were enthused, excited about the fact that these issues were on the table. Uh, not only were they on the table in the negotiating rooms, in the pavilions where the multi-sector community of, of actors from governments to the leaders of different organizations, private sector, all convened, there were four pavilions related to food systems, food security, and agriculture, where in Glasgow, there were none. So progress was made in that regard at this time. Excellent. Matthias, what is your view on, on COP27? Was it a success? Uh, for me, it was a success. I mean, there has been a lot of criticism, uh, except uh, right after the whole conference concluded. Um, I felt much better about it. And the reason why I feel better about it is, yes, it did not conclude that we have to be even tougher on coal or any other fossil fuels. Yes, there could have been even uh, more measures uh, and more concrete measures on reduction of uh, carbon emissions. However, for the first time, 
not only mitigation, but also adaptation is now on the COP agenda. And I find that very, very important. And it's a profound breakthrough. That has been tried in Kyoto by the Japanese in 1997 and has been tried ever since. So from that vantage point, uh, the Egyptian presidency that started the week of negotiations with presenting a a call for uh, the global community to pay more attention to adaptation has actually been able to negotiate a final document, uh, which this as being a, a key success factor. Erswin talked about food, food systems, agriculture, uh, missing in the declarations of Glasgow. Renewable energy is another term that didn't make it in the Glasgow um, uh, declaration. Also shows how complex and sometimes out of this world these negotiations are. Uh, the other word that was missing in Glasgow was water. And water is now uh, really front and center in the climate agenda. What carbon dioxide is for mitigation, water is for adaptation. So before we go on, though, I think it's really important that we not give this audience a, uh, a, a the impression that when where food security and agriculture and food systems are concerned was that that we are there was a complete success because indeed the negotiators did not include uh, food systems in the declaration while agriculture and food security are included in the declaration and the, the working group that supported including agriculture and food security in the declaration was quite clear on the work on implementation of climate action of agriculture and food securities must become part of the UNFCC as we move forward in order to support our achievement of the Paris Agreement. And so that was... Yes, definitely progress. But there is a definite, there was a failure of the negotiators to embrace the concept of food systems, despite the fact that the UN Food System Summit did include 150 countries from around the globe who supported the commitment to food systems. That was a missed opportunity that I think we must, when we move into COP28, see that as one of the objectives for, for COP28. We will talk about COP28 and what this means now for, for the process of the next weeks and months. But before we come to that, um, let's talk a little bit about the conversations you had on the ground. Um, you were there, you had a lot of conversations, full days. Um, but how would you describe like the overall sentiment? We had, for example, at the beginning of COP27, um, we had uh, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, with very clear words. I have the quote here. He said, humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. We're on a highway to climate hell. So did you feel this sense of urgency in the discussions that you had on the ground? Most people you, you meet at a COP uh, are uh, very engaged on the climate topic. Uh, they also understand what this is all about. Um, and, and therefore, the conversations are a bit more uh, focused on how to ensure that the outcome of the whole event is a step forward um, or two steps forward or three, because there's always uh, the tendency to also move back on some topics. Where there was real passion, 
is when um, more and more rumors came up that we would move even again away from the 1.5 degree limit. That was something both the business community as well as many others pushed back very loud and very clearly uh, throughout the week. And I think it certainly didn't harm the outcome of the negotiation. Uh, the other thing, of course, that uh, we have to say is that we all operate in different worlds and the way some of the young delegates and participants have been treated and the way they try to express uh, their concerns was also uh, uh, kind of really bitter a bit to realize. So that's kind of how I would say it. But overall, I'm happy to see that many people from around the world with very different backgrounds trying to contribute to real climate action. So I would just agree with everything that Matthias has just said and add on that there was a sense of urgency that was expressed by many of the representatives of some of the least developed nations. And that came to, to a head during the um, discussions regarding the loss and damage and creating a fund to support vulnerable nations recognizing that those who are suffering, already suffering the burdens of the climate crisis, were not the contributors to the climate crisis that, we're, that is beginning to evolve and take hold and that the Secretary General warned of in his opening comments. And the recognition that without the financial support that is necessary for the adaptation, uh, as well as the mitigation, that we will not bring the global community together in partnership to achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Accord or to address the consequences of our ever more erratic climate that is affecting so many. And so that was a, a, a significant piece of business. And those conversations that we had also, when you talk to many in the environmental community historically, there was no partnership between the agriculture and the food communities and the environmental community. That, if anything, the leadership of many of these advocacy groups in particular historically saw agriculture as the enemy. Uh, and if anything, it was just about limiting agricultural production to ensure uh, nature-based solutions took hold that protected the planet without, I would argue, the appropriate regard for the need for human health, human prosperity as a part of ensuring that we protect the planet. That has changed. And that's a sea change difference that will allow us to bring a coalition together towards the work that is necessary, not just at COP, but outside COP to begin to perform the work that is required to make the changes. All right. And uh, two of the conversations you had with uh, representatives of the environmental community, and especially in exactly that spirit and that sense, were with uh, Brent Loken from the WWF and with Darcy Feder from Nature Conservancy. And uh, we can take a listen. Brent, thank you for being with us here today. You have the title Global Food Lead for the World Wildlife Federation. Um, talk about what that means at WWF and how you see your role inside the organization. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so it's Global Food Lead Scientist. Okay. Jal Kampari is the food lead. Um, so his, his job is to coordinate all of the work within WWF around food. 
my job is to coordinate the science. And when you look at an organization like WWF and why I'm working for WWF, because it's such an amazingly huge and wonderful organization doing work all over the world in so many countries and the potential for scaling impact with it is massive, right? Mm -hmm. But along with that comes a very decentralized approach sometimes. And you have countries focusing on different things. And sometimes, you know, we'll find out about a country doing amazing work on food that we don't even know about, right? So my role within WWF is to take the science and try and to coordinate it and bring more of a global approach to it and then figure out, is there a way that we can coordinate some of the research and action that we have on it and uh, do it in a bit more systemic, you know, coordinated way. Well, you talk about this role uh, in a way that would suggest that food and agriculture, food systems and agriculture have been a part of the environmental agenda for a long time. I don't think that's the case. <laughs> that's the uh, case. I don't no, think that's the case. No. Uh, indeed, some would suggest that uh, many in the environmental movement for decades mm, nope. believe that agriculture was not uh, an issue that was uh, of importance in the yep. environmental conversation. And it was much more about nature-based solutions. Yep. Um, and that if anything, agriculture was a problem. Yes. Has that changed? No. <laughs> so, so I mean, you are, you're spot on. And that's, that's one of those siloed things. That us that are working on this stuff, we tend to talk about things like it's always been that case, but it's not, right? Even, you know, even thinking about the fact that WWF has taken up work on food is a pretty huge step, but mm -hmm. it's a very new step. Of all our practices, it's the newest practice. You know, so even WWF is just venturing into this realm of how do we work with food and what do we do with it? And as an organization, you know, we still haven't figured it out, what the role, you know, it plays. So I think people are starting to accept more that food and the environment are connected, but then taking it to the next step of what does that actually mean? How do we integrate food systems into our decisions and our work on forest and biodiversity and oceans and, and you know, everything else and deeply integrated? Uh, we still have some ways to go. So... What made WWF after all this time embrace, I, I think embrace may be too strong a word, but, a strong. Yeah. Be, but begin to address um, the, the issue of, of food and agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I think that WWF is probably, don't quote me on this, <laughs> but it will be, <laughs> is, you know, we, we, we might be one of the first organizations, environmental organizations, globally that took this up in this way. I mean, people think about WWF as, um, you know, saving tigers and, and, and saving forests and things like that, right? So, um, you know, but WWF a number of years ago started to see that all of these impacts are driven by food and food production and food consumption, right? And that we can't actually save those tigers and those forests and those orangutans that we put up there on posters if we don't change food how we produce it and what we consume it. So I think it, it, it was a very forward-looking approach and thinking to think that this, this should be part of an you know, environmental organization. But even within WWF, we have some ways to go in terms of uh, helping others to understand the, you know, like the connection between food and tigers. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you know, there's definitely some work to do. Yeah, yeah. 
let's talk about COP because we're sitting here right now in COP twenty seven. You can hear it. You can hear it all around us. And but we're sitting in the area where the civil society works, yep. and you have ministers who wander over here from time to time. Uh, but for the most part, they're over in the negotiating area, yep. um, working on the declaration. Yep. The Glasgow COP26 declaration, there was 5,000 words and not a word about food, agriculture, or water. Are we going to see a different declaration out of this COP? What do you think? Probably not. I would say, I mean, agriculture might be talked about. Um, I, would, I would say that uh, it might be mentioned, but it's not going to be mentioned to the extent and given the, given the prioritization that it should. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's been tremendous progress in terms of putting food on the table. And I, when I say food, I mean food systems, and it's just easier to say food. Um, <laughs> so it's food, agriculture, diet, it's what we eat, consume, throw away, and everything else, right? Look at all the pavilions that have popped up, you know, the fact that food is being talked about in so many different places. And I mean, that's, that's, that, that's a huge outcome. Taking that next step into the negotiations, mm -hmm. we're getting there. And, and I think that a lot of people are eyeing COP28 and the ambition of COP28 um, and, and really almost using this as a transition phase from one to the next, almost like alternative proteins, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a transition, it's a transition food from, um, from like, so I would say leading up to next year, COP, COP28, I think there's some real chance to, uh, to get some of the language into the into the cover decision, um, and into that final language. So, so what do you think is the work that is necessary between now and COP28 in order to deliver that outcome of getting agriculture and food systems into the language of the declaration? I think we need some member states that need to step up and really champion this and really take on the cause and really help to identify who those member states are that are going to take this on and say, we, we, we really want to push this through. Um, I mean, there's already work going on with some of uh, like the COP28 presidency, and I know the COP28 presidency is doing a fantastic job in terms of going out there and talking to a lot of people mm -hmm. in terms of really trying to understand what they should be focusing on, uh, what's on the agenda. So I, I think they're doing a fantastic job already in terms of laying the groundwork for this action to happen, right? Um, you know, and as much as we can, every single one of us listening mm -hmm. out there, we have to figure out how to push this agenda. Mm -hmm. You know, who do you know? Who do you talk to? What can you do? We need to, you know, civil society has to rise up mm -hmm. and be that voice and champion and say this this has to be a cause. We have to march about this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you're a you know musician, then figure out mm -hmm. how to write music about it. If you're a mm -hmm. parent, then teach your kids about it. It's it, it's got to come from everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, we've got 12 months to figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And so less than 12 months. We have right? less than 12, less months, than 12 because months because most of the decisions happen way, way prior before. To way so before. give us six months, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's say eight. Let's say eight. Um, what do you think is the role of the private sector in in the work that is necessary? I mean, it's it's huge and it's central, right? I mean, we're not going to be able to do this without the private sector. And without that capital flowing into the places where it needs to flow, right? And I think leading up to the Paris Agreement, the private sector is central to enabling the right conditions for that to happen and to pushing that, right? 
we need to have the same thing going forward. We need to have the private sector along with us. And when we're talking about food systems, the private sector has to start thinking from a food system standpoint. Mm -hmm. so they also have to start pushing this you know, approach. Um, so absolutely central, you know, but you know, one of the things that we are working on within WWF as we start to talk about the roles of different sectors and, and finances and where does it flow as an implementation, right? Is, is we're really working on like, what does implementation look like in different countries? because it's not going to be the same. So we can talk about subsidies or we can talk about different actions, but in different countries around the world, the actions are going to look very differently when we're talking about food system mm -hmm. transformation, mm -hmm. right? Implementation of diets or dietary mm -hmm. shifts, what does that look like in different countries? Or changes in food production practices, what does that look like, right? Mm -hmm. or, or the role of finance or trade or you know whatever it is. And I think work needs to be done, and we're doing work on that right now in terms of teasing out that gigantic puzzle of food system transformation in Indonesia versus the U.S. versus versus the Europe versus Colombia versus uh, uh, versus Kenya versus all these other places, right? And then once we start to understand that better, then we can start to look at some of these individual solutions and start to direct them and private sector interventions into the right place. So we're pulling on those on the right levers in the right place to have the impact at the right time to the most effect. It is it is heartwarming to hear and, uh, you as a, as a leader in WWF talk about a, a value-add role and recognize a value-add role for private sector. Because at the end of the Food System Summit, you'll remember that we had 200 members of civil society who signed the letter and, and mm -hmm. walked away from the declaration after a year and a half of work because they did not believe that private sector, particularly large agribusinesses, should be part of the conversation or part of the solution. And it sounds like you wouldn't agree no. with those leaders. No, I mean, just look what's happening in the U.S. and how divided it is. And it's gotten to that point because uh, one side won't talk to the other side, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what does that do? It puts everything in a stalemate. Mm -hmm. And I think if we adopt that same kind of approach where uh, we start to divide ourselves and we say, no, we're right and you're wrong, uh, we're good and you're bad, or whoever it is and whatever your positions are, we're talking about stalled action and punting that down the road. If there's one thing that's going to stall action more than anything else, it's that. Mm -hmm. It's not saying we, we need to talk to everybody, whether you, we agree with you or not, what your perspectives, where they come from. We've got to sit down at the table and have a civilized conversation and figure out together how to move forward. I want to thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, spending this time and for all the work that you're doing at WWF to help break down the silo between the environmental community and the food and ag community wow. because it's critical, it's critical to driving that public will that you just described. And thank you for the work that you're doing and getting the word out there, getting as many people on board as we can. So working together, we can do this, right? We will work together, my friend. We will. I Absolutely. look forward to it. Yeah, okay. Thank you. All good. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. So, Darcy, let's start by talking a bit about the Nature Conservancy and your role there. Great. So, um, the Nature Conservancy, as you may know, is one of the largest global environmental organizations. Um, we, of course, started 
as a land trust. So preserving pieces of land, setting them aside for conservation um, and protecting nature. It started as a U.S. organization, and we're strongest there, so we remain U.S.-based. We have 50 state chapters that are very active in their states, but now we also operate in almost 80 countries and are actively working on the joint crises of climate change and loss of biodiversity uh, and are very active at this particular COP, really focused on looking at uh, stepping up climate finance and uh, interesting and innovative joint finance solutions, um, but also really focused on nature-based solutions and making sure that we're looking at uh, solutions to climate change that also protect biodiversity. And uh, as you know, agriculture is a key space where both on mitigation and adaptation, um, we can do some great work on protecting uh you know, preventing deforestation, protecting natural resources, um, protecting and enhancing soil health, etc. Sure. sure, and you, you, I'm glad you brought up agriculture because in the last COP, agriculture wasn't even on the agenda. Uh, and it was all about nature-based solutions. Uh, and those of us in the ag and food system space and food security space were pretty excited when um, we now have an agriculture day. But they brought agriculture and food systems and nature-based solutions together. As a leader in the environmental community, how do you see the relationship between agriculture and supporting nature-based solutions? We've come a long way in the last 10 and especially I think the last five years. Environmental organizations and producer groups and agriculture may be concentrated on or they, they worked together on the Conservation Reserve Program in the U.S. or something, you know, um, it was, and it was sort of the, the hook and bullet crowd, right? It was protecting areas for hunting or fishing or, you know, recreation and, and the edge of field kind of conservation. But there wasn't a lot of um, cross-fertilization besides that, I would say. And I think agriculture sometimes was a little prickly about their contribution. And saying, you know, we're business people, we have to do our thing. Um, but climate change itself has changed the conversation because we see agriculture, um, you know, the environmental community saying, wait a second, soil's pretty good at sequestering carbon. And we can't just protect our way out of this problem. We can't put a fence around the wild lands and achieve what we need to achieve. We have to talk about better managing the lands that are also responsible for people's livelihoods. So we need to expand this conversation and farmers are part of the solution. And on the other side, you have farmers. Can you repeat that? Can you just repeat <laughs> farmers that are for part our of audience? The solution. <laughs> um, and we also have on the farming side, whether they want to use the words climate and change in the same solution, I don't know any farmer who would say they still plant the same things on the same timetable as their father did, right? And it's mostly fathers, let's be honest, right? Although <laughs> today's, well, in the sure, U.S., sure. in the U.S., yeah. um, although that's changing now in this generation of farmers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's acknowledgement that they're dealing with greater volatility, you know, longer periods of drought, more intense storms, and that, you know, managing their own risk is becoming more of a problem as well as the fact that there's the opportunity then to think about ecosystem services markets and to see the upside of participating in uh, conservation and climate smart acts. Mm -hmm. 
And so bringing these two communities together, as you know, two have not always seen eye to eye on either the problem or definitely the solution, um, is a new pathway forward, but an important pathway forward. I think you'd agree with that. Oh, absolutely. As, as we think about bringing the farmers, and you have a company like Bayer that is committed to providing the solutions, the biological solutions, the digital solutions that help bring farmers along. How do you see the role of corporates in the driving to the achieving the sustainable development goals and more importantly for us in this conversation here at COP, getting us to that 1.5? So, you know, I, I think as you are, I'm having a lot of really interesting conversations at this COP and really thinking about the roles of civil society, of the private sector and corporates, of um, governments in this. And I think you need all three. I think sometime at the COPs where we have the governments who are, you know, making big pledges, you know, a hundred billion dollars for this and let's match it with money for adaptation. What does it mean to a farmer? And how does that money, how does, you know, a country's uh, Paris Agreement commitment, and hopefully they included ag in that commitment, right, where they see ag as a pathway to achieve their emissions reduction. Does the ag minister know that? And do the people that work for the ag minister know that? And have they sort of worked that into their plans, like how we make those pledges reach the ground? Mm -hmm. Because in a really important way that corporates can partner with governments, and then corporates can look at, there's a huge business case for translating that into farmer options. Yeah. And for me, I was asked earlier today, what would I see as success? And I said, well, I'm going to take the ag sector because that's what I think of first, right? Um, given my background, if I'm a farmer, I should know like how to participate and I should have incentives that make the environmentally friendly path, the carbon sequestering path, the biodiversity protecting path as attractive or more to me than a more extractive approach, right? And so I just need tools and options. I need credit extended to me on terms and uh, a length of time that allows me to take maybe a longer time to get a return if I'm making some investments and in changing my cropping system. I need... Um, technologies and tools that will help get me there, right? I need alternatives for fertilizers, for controlling pests. Um, I need options to combine those pest control tools with intercropping or cover cropping mm -hmm. to get the ideal mix. I need consultants and scientists who will help me measure my output and what's working and how it's you know happening. And I think all of those are tools that certainly companies can help provide. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, though, that the conversation, certainly in the United States sometimes, right? We want to talk all about the carrots and we don't want to talk about the government role or the sticks. But, you know, I spent a long time negotiating trade deals on behalf of the U.S. and trying to make sure that U.S. agriculture had access to foreign markets. And if farmers want to get the full benefit, full credit for the work that they are doing to be part of the solution, then I think there's definitely a role for oversight and for government and corporates to work together to provide the transparency, the reporting, the interoperable platforms so that I know if my climate smart corn that I grew in Kansas wants to be sold to Europe, Europe's going to feel confident that it's really part climate smart, right? To negotiate that mutual acceptance of the efforts that farmers in different countries are making. Um, and I think we've really seen 
in the last uh, few months, certainly with the war in Ukraine, that we need food to move. And food that is produced, you know, efficiently in one place needs to get to hungry people somewhere else um, and to, you know, do so efficiently. And so we have to have confidence in each other's systems. And that's something that corporates and government have to do together. And that's exciting to hear someone who has admittedly spent more of your career in, in government. Yes. And so I, I find it refreshing to hear you talk about the role of whole of society mm -hmm. and why we and how we need to work together. How do you respond to those in the civil society community who would suggest nature conservancy? No, you can't work with. Uh, the corporates in order to solve this situation? Well, I think it's fair to say that the Nature Conservancy has been criticized many times for being too friendly with business or too willing to look at market-based solutions. Um, and I think it's fair to say that governments and corporates haven't always gotten it right, right? It's and very fair. what I think is really interesting and the challenge of a nature-based solutions approach, right, or a climate-smart approach is that it really will only work and it will only be resilient if it is adapted to scale and to community culture. And I think that is where the corporate approach has sometimes fallen short, right? We have a product and we're going to sell the product to everybody instead of we have uh, a technology or solution that can be adapted and that it should be used differently for a cassava farmer in Africa than a corn farmer in Kansas. And, you know, we have both technologies that are interesting now and easier to adapt than some that we had before. Um, but I think we also have a better knowledge that if we want the environmental outcomes, which I would argue are critical to Bear's future, right? A changing climate does not help your bottom line. Um, then we have to make sure that the climate solutions we're trying to get in the agricultural space will be resilient. And if farmers aren't actually financially better off, if they don't have, um, you know, options for tailoring their agricultural practices in a way that not only brings cash, but nourishes their family, you know, looking at multiple benefits, then those solutions won't be resilient. They won't stick with the climate smart path. And so I think the challenge for us as civil society and for you and for governments is to say, how do we deliver those suite of things in a way that's really, um, you know, hits the triple bottom line, right? The age old, you know, social and economic and environmental gain. And um, I think, I think our understanding of that um, at our, is better. I think the, the technology, the ability we have to tailor solutions is now better than it was, you know, even a decade ago. And the challenge for us is just to keep ourselves really on task to say, is this a solution that the farmers themselves want to own and carry on and adopt and make resilient? Before we go today, it would be really helpful, I think, as we think about looking towards the success of COP27 and moving into COP28 where there's have a hint that uh, food and agriculture will be uh, more center stage, not just a day, but uh, a, one of the priority uh, issues for conversation during that COP. If the world to that COP is what will deliver successful outcomes, what do you think the environmental community and the agriculture community should do together between now and COP28 to make the outcomes more successful at COP28? That is a really good question. 
Um, I don't know if I know the answer for sure, but I know I'd like to be part of figuring it out. So maybe that's something we can work on together. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I said, I said earlier in our conversation that when we think about what does success look like or how do we think about operationalizing programs, I like to think to myself, if I'm the farmer, do I know what choices I have? And are there, is, is the, the environmentally responsible, the climate friendly choice as attractive to me as the others? And what can we do to make it so? One of the things we might be able to do in the road to COP is talk very practically about what are the things that stand in the way of making the investments in, you know, in sequestering carbon and making the investments in, you know, reducing inputs or managing nutrients. And what are the things that hold farmers back from doing that, right? Well, I can tell you as the chair of Bear Sustainability Committee for the Supervisory Board that I'm looking forward to working with you over the coming months so that we can deliver in a way that we use the tools in both of our institutions to help us move this agenda forward. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So those were the conversations that Earthwind had with Brent Loken from WWF and Darcy Fedder from Nature Conservancy. Another very interesting conversation that Earthwind and Matthias uh, together had was with Janet Ranganathan from the World Resources Institute. And she, for example, brought up very interesting numbers of really the dimension of challenge that we have. So, Janet, can you tell us a bit about the World Resources Institute and your work at the Institute. So the World Resources Institute is a global NGO that is focused on driving system change um, in three systems, so the food, the energy, and the urban system. We also work on what we call the enabling context, which is the financial, economic, and governance systems. But uh, we have set very specific targets to drive transitions in the food, energy, and city system. And we work on that at both the global level, as well as at the country and subnational level in our focus regions. Mm -hmm. In short, we use the term count it, change it, scale it. Count it is code word for bringing research, data, and analysis. Change it so we can change it in one place or one corporation or one city. Scale it is we always have to be pushing ourselves to go to many cities, many companies, and many countries, but that is our approach. So we're here at COP27. What are the top priorities of your organization coming out of the outcomes document or the conversations here at COP27? Well, of course, to ensure that we do our absolute best to keep the world on track for the 1.5 degree target, which is... Uh, no small thing, as we're already at about 1.1 degrees. Um, and I think there's two systems that we have to transform to do that. And uh, that's the energy system that propels our economy. And then the other energy system, which is what propels me every day, it's our food system. Mm -hmm. Much of the attention over the years has been on the uh, energy mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. um, but now, finally, a little mm -hmm. bit late, but better late than never, we're starting to see uh, the emphasis on the food system. Mm -hmm. So I think Matisse will agree with me when I said we were really disappointed at COP26 when food and ag were not even included on the agenda. We have a food day this year in COP27. 
Does that make a difference? And if so, why? Absolutely. There's absolutely no way to get to 1.5 degrees without addressing the food system and actually addressing the land conversion problem because I've seen no scenario that gets us to 1.5 degrees that doesn't halt land conversion and forage. So if we don't have the food discussion, no matter what we do or how good it is in the, en the other energy system, we will not achieve our goals. But there are also many other reasons to be working on the food system beyond the climate agenda. There's a whole issue of poverty and food insecurity, which is going up the agenda again. There's also the issue of biodiversity, which is intimately linked to that. So if you want to achieve the sustainable development goals, you want to achieve the Convention on Biodiversity, you want to achieve the climate, food needs to be right there on all three of those. Matthias, we, we haven't brought you into this conversation. As you listen to Janet talk about how WRI work, how do you see Bayer interacting with organizations like WRI on achieving our shared goals? You know that I, before I joined Bayer, um, worked for Mars. That's where I actually met Janet. Um, we, we had a, a really uh, interesting workshop in Copenhagen. And a lot of people who were at that workshop are now in leading positions in sustainability in companies across many sectors and also in the ex sector. Mm -hmm. So Daniel Wennert, for example, who was with you at the World Resource Institute is now at Syngenta. I moved to Bayer. And the reason is that when we came together in Copenhagen, we just realized how strategically relevant mm -hmm. the food system is to solve for the climate. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got the call offering me to join Bayer and to help them with their sustainability strategy, a lot of that insight went into what we started to work on in 2019. So in many ways, also a huge thank you for enlightening me and many others uh, during that meeting uh, a couple of years ago in a city that hosted COP15, which was a huge failure in part for not recognizing this. And I think one important element of it is this also turns the whole conversation into a conversation about people because so many people are employed in the food and agriculture sector. And we tend to talk about carbon molecules much more than about humans in that conversation. Um, you said, Ursula, in your initial comment, um, how unhappy you were about food and agriculture not being included as much as necessary in Glasgow. Um, it wasn't even mentioned in the final declaration. More than 5,000 words and not a single word, not a single word about food, agriculture, or for that matter, water. That has to change. Yeah. I totally agree. It, it was largely missing. I, I, maybe I would say hidden um, at the last COP in the sense that food was there. So the methane pledge, uh, obviously food is a major contribution to that. The deforestation pledges of 50 or so countries, if you're going to stop deforestation, then you're not going to do that successfully unless you deal with the food system. So it's been there. It just hasn't been as explicit and problem as it would be. I want to go back to another fact point. So we've done some modeling under a business-as-usual scenario for the food system, it will actually account for 70% of the, uh, the budget, the Paris Agreement budget. So this one sector will actually eat 70% of the budget up under a business-as-usual scenario. So that in itself is a, a very prominent reason for why this has to be front and central of every COP. The IPCC report that was published in February 
just before the second invasion uh, of Putin and Russia in the Ukraine, has a very hopeful message in it. Uh, and it's on page 51. It's basically <laughs> hidden like in a, in a graphic. Not that you've read it at all. Not that I read it at all. <laughs> Not that you knew that I'm a nerd. Yeah? But what I found so hopeful is, they looked at where is the biggest potential to take carbon out of the atmosphere between now and 2030. Mm -hmm. So what can we do now to be successful? And the biggest potential is in renewable energies. We all knew that. Mm -hmm. But then you look at number two, almost as big is nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm. So if we create a food system that reduces carbon emissions, that removes carbon out of the atmosphere, And if we make this food system resilient, we actually have not a problem, but an engine to solve the problem. And this page 51 is something we need to bring to life through how we redesign our value chains and most importantly, how do we redirect our investments and innovation. You know, when we came to almost the closure of the Food System Summit and looking at what it would require to transform to a just food system. 200 NGOs abandoned the Food System Summit and the Declaration, the Secretary General's outcomes document because of private sector's participation as a primary reason, saying private sector created the problems we have in environment, they created the problems we have in food system, They should not be part of the conversations regarding the solutions. As a leader working in WRI, how do you see it? Of course, I, I can't see how we're going to solve this. I, I think of the food problem as sort of, at the global level, there's sort of three big challenges. One is, you know, we've, we've got something like around a 56% gap between the food we produce today and what we need to feed the population in 2050. So that's one big gap. The second big gap is 11 gigaton gap that we need to, to reduce emissions by, by from the agricultural sector. That 11 gigatons is the difference between what a business as usual emissions from the sector will be to what we would have to be to be compliant with the Paris Agreement. So that's your second gap. And then the third gap is this big land gap. So that 50% food gap translates into another 600 million hectares of land that will come into production. So we have to solve those three challenges, okay? And that's going to require all hands on deck. It's going to require changes in farmer practices and changes in NGOs' view about the role of this sector in, in significant environmental problems. It needs business in there. I mean, business may be part of the problem, but they are also going to be very much part of the solution. So um, I can't imagine how we're going to solve these three massive challenges, which I think are the challenges, the biggest challenges humanity faces. If we start taking key actors off the table, it's just, it's, it, you know, we, we need coalitions working together. I've not heard um, this framing, so repeat for us. 11 gigatons is the emissions gap. The expected business as usual emissions for agriculture is um, 15 gigatons. We have to get down to four gigatons for agriculture to have its fair yeah. share of okay. the, the, the Paris budget. So the difference between 15 and 4 is 11. That's an 11 gigaton gap. Yeah. 
And then the second one was the food gap that we so, see. So there's a food gap, 56% food gap between the food produced in 2010 and what we need to just adequately feed the population in 2050. The third gap was what we call the land gap. So there's a food, GHG and land gap. The land gap is about 600 million hectares, which is about two times the size of India. That's the amount of additional land that we will need to bring into production to close that 50% field gap. If we don't do things like reducing food loss and waste, shifting tires, or increasing productivity. So I love putting the two of you together because we move from admiring the problem into action, and then we define the action. And the action is to produce, protect, reduce, and restore. And if we can do, take both of those again, private sector, environmental community working together, we can achieve these goals, but that is the only way for us to do it. So with that, I thank you both and you. Uh, appreciate you being with us here today. And let's go out and make this a successful cop. And in the same building, actually it was Pavilion C in the Blue Zone at COP27, Arthur Matthias uh, also spoke to Diane Holdorf with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Let's listen in. So, Diane, you serve as the Executive Vice President and a member of the Senior Management Team at the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. Can you tell us a bit about the WBCSD and your role at the organization? Sure, Earthrin, as always, it's great to be doing this together. Diane Holdorf, as I said, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, WBCSD, is a platform of leading global businesses, over 225 businesses, including Bayer, coming together to work on collective action to integrate the solutions for climate, nature, and equity challenges into business strategy. We work together to operationalize that and then engage the capital markets into understanding what are the challenges, what are the finance mechanisms that are needed to help support and drive these transformations. So last year, when you and I sat together for a podcast, we were talking about the fact that food and ag were not on the agenda. This year, not only is it on the agenda, we get a day. How important is that? It's incredibly important. And when the Egyptian presidency was originally starting their planning, agriculture was not going to have its own day. It's really through the work of so many committed partners and the recognition by the presidency and of course the UNFCCC on the role of agriculture in the climate emergency that we were able to actually come to the point where agriculture does indeed have its own day this year at the COP. That is going to continue to accelerate we believe. It very much builds off of the successes of the UN's food system summit two years ago but really takes it to a next level because it shows how important the agricultural transformation is in the role of solving the climate emergency. And I know we're going to get to this, but directing finance flows into agriculture is key and making sure they're doing it in a way that is just and fair mm -hmm. is so important in these investment decisions. Mm -hmm. So I love that you said, you know, we're going to get to that. Let's get to that. Okay, let's get to that. <laughs> <laughs> because we often talk about the transformation of the food system, but we know we can't get there without private sector, without finance. And as a member of WBCSD, Matthias, how important is it to you that Bayer is participating in the COP27, 
but also, more importantly, the sustainability agenda for me. One of the big challenges when we, when we look back and uh, look at the last two or three decades on climate action, we will see that not only did the business community lobby for the wrong things, those who had a different opinion weren't present. And I want to say that is true for a very long time. And for us, it's important to be here and to be very clear as a business participant that we stand by the 1.5 degree limit, that climate is very relevant for our business. Our number one business risk is water. So if climate change and the climate crisis is moving in the direction as currently predicted, Bayer as a company, our customers will struggle with adapting to that. And therefore to be here and to be very clear that climate action is not contrary, but favoring good business uh, is our number one objective. Diane, you said it in your opening that Bayer is a member of WBCSD. So your members, the organizations, companies join your organization because they believe uh, in the issues of sustainability as Matthias has just articulated. But one of the critiques that we often hear is businesses agree, but they agree as part of corporate social responsibility, not as a part of their business. Do you see businesses moving more towards sustainability as a strategic business priority, as Matthias just described? Or are we in that paradigm where most businesses, many businesses still see it as CSO? There's been a tremendous shift, particularly by the leading companies, to recognize that if they don't embed important aspects of sustainability into the business strategy, not only are they losing resilience, they're losing competitiveness, they're increasing their risk, and that risk includes the review by the capital markets and how their business can perform going forward. So truly moving from the narrative of why this matters into the how we get this done is the phase that we're very much in. And, and granted, not every business either has the awareness nor the capacity to really embed all of that into their business plans and operations yet. But it is through coming together with the type of collective action that we do in WBCSD that companies like Bayer can not only learn from others and share with others what they're doing, but together we can build the tools, the methodologies, the roadmaps, the shared metrics, the reporting guidance that allows us to move faster together, that allows companies to drive it consistently down and with their suppliers through their whole value chain. So we know that we're in it together to really drive the business solutions from that purpose. When we talk about business embracing the business solutions, as the former head of the World Food Program, you know I'm gonna raise a question about how does this potentially address the challenges of food insecurity and malnutrition? Um, we th so often we see these in two different silos. We talk about food insecurity, we talk about malnutrition, we talk about environment. But the reality of achieving the goal of a sustainable food system also requires not only that it meet our environmental needs, but our health needs. Are we moving in the right direction from a corporate standpoint to achieve that reality where our food system can support our environment and our human health? 
Let's start with you, Matias, from a corporate standpoint. Then I want to hear how are you driving this with businesses? We are in the blue zone of COP27 here in Sharm el Sheikh. And uh, just right behind us is um, the booth of Pakistan. And written on the top is what uh, happens in Pakistan doesn't stay in Pakistan. Um, Pakistan has been affected by almost all the water challenges that we currently see in the world. And we all experience climate change through water. They had drought, they had extreme heat, they had a massive flooding to a point that they now have also uh, real challenges to get to safe drinking water in many places. And I'm saying that because the food system in Pakistan has basically been washed away. So if we don't get the carbon emissions under control, all the other stuff we are doing will not be enough. That's the starting point. And it's very easy to commit to net zero or to say we extend by 1.5 degrees as the limit to which we can increase the global temperature since industrialization. But, and I'm now speaking uh, to you, Erswin, as the head of Bayer's ESG committee in our supervisory board. What you have to look at is, are we cutting our emissions in half every 10 years, three times in a row? Are we growing carbon neutral? Are we offsetting the then remaining emissions in ways that make sense? For example, through nature-based solutions. That's the agenda. And that is a business transformation agenda. That's an agenda the whole management team of a business needs to stand behind or else we won't achieve it. And you are holding us to account to drive this transformation. And I think for us, it's the precondition to do the second thing. And that is to ensure that we reach more smallholder farmers, that we build more resilience in the food systems, and that we ensure that the just transition doesn't happen as a line item in a declaration, but it happens on the ground and it's felt by all of those smallholder entrepreneurs who are currently looking at us saying, hey guys, you are talking a lot here. I get all the trouble related to the emissions you historically put in the atmosphere, but I don't really get the help I need uh, to manage my business well. Well, as the chair of the ESD committee at Bayer, I appreciate you. She's a tough chair, by the way. Yeah. So it's not an easy, easy <laughs> conversation. This is much I, easier, I, this I appreciate your, your holding me accountable for what the board as the governing body holds management accountable for delivering. And you are representing um, our shareholders. We have Temasek, major shareholder, says carbon neutrality 2050. BlackRock got a bit of heat in the US from some political forces, but also fully committed to carbon neutrality. The Sovereign Fund of Norway fully committed to it. Now, if that is true, then they also need to be committed to the transformational journey that needs to happen at Bayer and at all the other companies that have made the commitments qualifying us to be a member in your organization. Matthias, what's in the outcomes that will continue to support the activities that you've just described that are they're so committed to, to investing? I mean, what we have in common is that we all followed a lot of COPs for, for quite a while. And at one point early on, it was actually an objective of the agricultural lobby 
to not being at COP, to not having a conversation about contributing to a quarter of the emission. So they were literally trying to kind of keep the topic off the agenda. What I see at Bayer is both in our R&D department as well as generally in the different businesses is a lot of passion. The climate crisis is no longer a topic that is somewhere remote from our business. It's at the core and it's also hitting the hearts and minds. So A, it's good that we can reflect that in, in how we are present here. And then the other thing is we are super relevant. Our R&D budget in agriculture is two and a half billion dollars. That's more than double the next competitor and three times more than the whole CGIR budget. So we are the, the 800 pound gorilla when it comes to egg innovation. Are we directing it to invent the future we want in chickpeas with higher protein content, in crops that are drought resistant, in all of those things, we need to decarbonize agriculture. It's the big task for uh, our business strategy. And of course, COP helps us to both reflect on what we need to do more of, but also to demonstrate what's going on at the moment and to share some of the internal excitement we have with some of the innovations we are working on. Just one example, we are working on transforming the way rice is produced with two benefits. One, it's dry seeded, so you need less water to produce it. And two, the rice will no longer emit the methane that is now a big problem for climate. And we talked about methane in Glasgow and the world made a commitment to reduce the methane emissions. Mm -hmm. The innovation we are working on, both social innovation as well as product innovation, will enable smallholder farmers to produce rice in ways that is good for the climate and at the same time to be more resilient against the droughts the climate currently is, is throwing in their way. We have to be here to share that because I also believe, and again, let me close with a famous quote of a woman that I really adore. We have admired the problem for too long. We have to focus on the solutions. And of course, first one, it's your quote. Well, I appreciate that, Matthias. But before we close, I think it's important, Diane, that you help the world understand why companies like Bayer, that many would argue, are part of the problem. That part of the reason why we got here was because of the agricultural system that Bayer profited from. But you operate a platform of hundreds of bears, hundreds of companies that are part of the system, but now committed to supporting the sustainable transformation of the food system and achieving net zero, first getting us to 1.5 and then achieving net zero. How do you explain to the world why we must work with corporations like Bear to, get, to move us forward? And Earthrun, it's that term systems change that is, for me, that guiding light because business is integral, as you said, Matthias, integral to the system, particularly in food and agriculture. And it takes leading businesses like Bayer to demonstrate what 
integrating sustainability into business strategy can deliver as benefit to the business. It shows others how important it is, and it, that credibility that is generated by the action that's created is what is the proof point. Just having commitments and ambitions is insufficient. And that's, as you said, partly what got business to this trust breakdown over time. But, you know, and there's, and let's be clear, there are still companies who are operating like that, and it is still creating challenges. But the companies that we're working with, like Bayer and others, have moved way beyond that. And yes, they've got the commitments. Yes, they've set the targets, but they are actually delivering actions collectively in platforms like WBCSD, but individually with their budgets, with their uh, operating um, systems in ways that are, de are proving that those actions can have impact. And then they're reporting on those actions with transparency, publicly, engaging their capital markets, engaging their stakeholders, and showing what they're doing very openly year on year. That circle of performance is what rebuilds that credibility, demonstrates what leadership actually looks like now, and actually shows what it's gonna take to get there. And it's ways that really business has to be integral to in order for us to succeed. Well, Dan, I thank you for can, being here with us today. Can I ask one more question again? If you must. I, I <laughs> don't must, but I would like to. KPMG recently published a study interviewing around a thousand CEOs around the world. And two thirds said, well, you know what? We have like all these crises, we have inflation, we are slowing down or thinking about slowing down our ESG or sustainability efforts. How do you deal with, and you don't need to name companies, but generic CEO who tells you that, that he or she is at a point where she rethinks and slows down uh, the efforts for her company? Well, it goes back to where we started. Is it a story? Or is it how the CEO is positioning the company for continued year-on-year -year performance and success? Mm -hmm. And it's through the demonstration of what that good performance looks like. It's how capital markets reward that good performance and risk management that CEOs finally understand if they're in that position still today, what it's going to take to actually prepare to respond to the climate crisis material impact on their business. And let's be clear, that is usually where it starts. Climate impacts are generally where the first risks, the biggest cost risks are to companies. There's not a lot of companies who aren't experienced that very real cost risk to their P&Ls right now. They may not be translating it into the types of actions though that they need to take. Yep. And that's where I think we'll continue to see action. And then once companies understand the benefit of preparing for climate action and investing that into the ways that stakeholders and investors can recognize, we start to see that then extend to these other challenges that we're also facing and integrate it into what really solid business performance looks like. Would you throw out uh, companies that slow down their sustainability efforts? This is why we put the membership against the target? This is why we put the membership criteria in place. So we recognize that for companies who are choosing to be part of a platform like WBCSD where we have membership criteria in place that we're here to support them on that journey. But if companies don't feel like they're prepared to make those commitments right now, then 
they're not ready to be part of a leading platform of collective action. Thank you. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Earthrin. Thank, Thank you, you Matthias. Okay, so now let's turn to the look ahead. COP27 ended a few days ago with the final declaration, and we're now at the end of 2022. So, Earthwind, um, if you look ahead and the process leading up to the next COP, next year, COP28, could you describe for our audience a little bit how that goes and what are the next important milestones uh, in that process? Thank you very much for that question. And, and as you heard from those that we met with during the COP and Matthias and I spoke about at the top of this program, while they were excited about the inclusion of food and agriculture into the final declaration, that's a step in the right direction, but we're not done yet. We need to ensure that including food and agriculture in the declaration translates into inclusion of food and agriculture into the, the NDCs of the country, their development paths, their pathway documents, supporting the work that happens at country level to address both adaptation and mitigation of activities and that we get agriculture and food into those, into those uh, documents. And that will require that we have additional financing. And so we know that it is the, the $100 billion that has been committed by governments is one thing, but this is a whole of society. And so where's the private sector investment, the philanthropic investment necessary to support the capital stacks that will scale up the businesses that are required to create those food systems, that transformation of the food system to one that supports environmental health, human health, as well as financial return to all of the stakeholders across the food system. That capital that we've seen in the energy sector uh, catalyzed to address climate change, that capital has not come forward in the agriculture and food system space. So the work to bring such a commitment to the next COP must happen now. Uh, we're already behind the curve. We should have started the day we left the COP, but there are many already engaged, and I look forward to that work. Uh, Bear was very much a part of the capital that we catalyzed in the U.S. in support of the transformation to a healthier food system. So I'm looking forward to working with them as we move forward to develop asset managers, asset owners, corporates, and philanthropy so that we have a whole of society commitment to the financing that is necessary. And then the last thing I'll say is that we need to ensure that we begin the political conversations now to change the minds of those delegations that were concerned about inclusion of food systems in the declaration for COP27 to ensure that we succeed in including food systems in the declaration for COP28. Matthias, in, in reflection of the conversations we just heard and you had on the ground and also, of course, the outcome of COP27. How do you look at the next COP and, and then the way to the next COP? Janet put a few very sobering numbers. We just heard them in her contribution. And uh, I had to kind of ask her just to repeat them. 
because I find them so profound. So it's great that food, agriculture, possibly food systems at one point are on the agenda now, but we need to reduce 11 gigatons of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas equivalents in order to, to achieve what we are set out to do. Um, we need to take action to increase food production by 56% all the way until uh, 2050. And we need to do all that whilst protecting nature, restoring land, uh, and in, often because climate change is moving in the wrong direction, also on less land. That's a huge challenge. I would argue that's equal to or even bigger than uh, the whole energy transition agenda. And uh, uh, the question for COP28 will be, now that we have the mandate to talk about these things, can we really bring this adaptation agenda to life that does some of those things? And then the second point I want to say is, there's a huge adaptation topic that didn't play such a big role at COP27 that is important for COP28. Literally billions of people suffer from extreme heat, from temperatures above 35 degrees Celsius, from extreme humidity uh, corresponding with, the, with those high temperatures. And the agenda of extreme heat is one, generally the agenda of health and climate is one that I would like to see accelerated in the run-up for COP28. Uh, and I would also like to see that um, the Convention on Biodiversity, which actually meets uh, in a few days, will take on the uh, call at COP27, which is to fully align the biodiversity agenda with the climate agenda as well. Matthias, let me ask um, specifically, because, I mean, this is a Bayer podcast, right? What is our role uh, at Bayer in this process? What is, how would you describe this? Corporations no longer have a choice uh, whether or not they want to uh, be part of the mitigation agenda. Uh, the government commitments we see from around the world, from, from, from countries starting with Australia, over China, uh, the European Union, the United States, many, many other countries, um, we, we have to reduce our carbon emissions much faster and much more radical than what's currently in the plan. So for the business community and for a company like Bayer, this is really not an option. This is a very clear call to action. On adaptation, I believe uh, businesses have a choice. When you're in agriculture and you choose to do nothing about adaptation, well, then you'll be out of business very quickly. So I think for our crop science business, it's absolutely clear um, that we will play a very strong role in the adaptation agenda. For our health business, looking at tropical diseases, looking, for example, at extreme heat as a challenge, it's a very different conversation. So what we have to do in the leadership of Bayer is to think about to what extent does our health business want to participate in the adaptation agenda? And ultimately, it's like M and A squared because we have to focus on mitigation and adaptation, but also on access. Because access is really the crucial point to ensure that humanity is able to survive at the margins of the climate comfort zone. Um, that is something that was very high on the COP agenda, and it should remain high on Bayer's agenda. We need to reach as many 
of the now 8 billion people on this planet as we possibly can with our products and services. Thank you, Matthias. I mean, we started this, um, this podcast with a discussion about the outcome of, 2020, uh, of, of COP27. Was it a success or not? Now, looking ahead, I would like to ask you, what makes you optimistic? What gives you hope? Um, Earthen, I heard you uh, at COP, at this one conversation I think you had with uh, a journalist from the Washington Post, where you talked about the year 2015, right? The year 2015, where we had a great momentum, the Paris Agreement, sustainable development goals. And now in 2022, it is for sure different, right? We have really a tough year with the war in Ukraine and, and everything that comes with it. So what gives you hope looking ahead on that journey to COP28? What gives me hope as we move towards COP28 is that we are even participating in a conversation about adaptation, where there's a recognition by the global community that just because I fix my problems, I don't fix the global problems, and that you can't build walls high enough to stop the consequences of a climate crisis, and that we as a global community are all in this together, and uh, that the, the investments that are necessary must be investments, not just over here, but everywhere. And those conversations, which in 2015 were not at the center of the agenda, there's a recognition of the reality of that as a result of COVID, that it's, we live on one small planet and we all must work together to solve the problems for universally. And uh, as a result, at COP27, those conversations resulted in the loss and damage clause included in the declaration. And I look forward to COP28, where we will see, I think, have even more momentum towards global solutions and not just solutions of my problem, because these are not my problem. These are our problems. And working together, we can achieve the, the very ambitious goals of the Paris Climate Accord. And I felt better in listening to many of not just the advocates, but the delegates in the room as they responded to not just their own concerns, but the concerns of, of, of the most vulnerable people on this planet. Thank you, Earthen. Same question to you, Matthias, as a final one. I mean, you have so much experience also with, with COP. I think at one point you mentioned that you even uh, were present at COP1 uh, many years ago. What gives you hope looking ahead? Well, what, what gives me hope is that uh, the world is able, even in arguably one of the most difficult years in a long time, to agree on something. Um, and... Uh, People who are criticizing COP and uh, believe that's like just like a, a, a big kind of sitting around the campfire um, uh, should realize. Uh, and really, for me, it's a celebration of uh, how the world comes together that we are able to make progress collectively uh, as a as a community on this planet. What I would like to see is that we focus also on embracing the social and other innovation that is necessary to, to kind of really drive change. 
Uh, I've spoken to quite a few really cool innovators. You know, we have a strong focus on water at the moment. There's so much happening in the space. So a world welcoming the possibilities of innovation. Uh, basically, the equivalent of what the solar panel and wind turbine is in the area of adaptation is going to be a crucial thing that the uh, United Arab Emirates, at the, as the host of uh, COP28, might be able to bring to bear and might be able to advance when they host. I heard that there were then a thousand people from the United Arab Emirates in Egypt to really think about what worked, what didn't work so well at COP27. And the one thing Bayer is very proud supporting is initiatives that improve the effectiveness of the negotiations. I'm not interested in efficient negotiations. I'm interested in effective negotiations. And from that vantage point, I hope that the next host uh, will be able to even make more progress uh, than, than Egypt. But as I said at the beginning, I was quite happy to see how Egypt was delivering against these very difficult tasks in one of the worst years for COP negotiation, given the second invasion of Russia in the Ukraine, that hopefully will be history when we come together next December. Thank you, Matthias. Thank you, Ursin. On that note, I'd like to close our session. Thank you very much for your time, for your perspectives, and for sharing the conversations uh, you both had uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27 on the ground. Thank you very much to you out there for tuning in, for listening to this special episode of the Bayer podcast, Headlines of the Future. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye. 